I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. We are down to the final five days of Jesus' life before his death. And here in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19, we see him spending his final Monday. That's our passage, our text for this morning. Mark 11, verse 12 through 19. Before I read it, I want to ask you a question. How would you spend your Monday if you knew you'd be dead on Friday? How would you spend your Monday if you knew that you'd be dead on Friday? Because we're about to read how Jesus spent his. We'll pick it up in verse 12. On the following day, you remember last week, it was Palm Sunday for Jesus. On the following day, Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We're going to jump right in this morning because we have a lot to cover. Point number one is this, all show, no substance. All show, no Substance. You know, yesterday's trip for Jesus into Jerusalem, it was marked by celebration, cries of Hosanna, and triumph. Today's trip into Jerusalem, it's marked with hunger, disappointment, and a curse. What a difference a day makes. You know, we learn in verse 12 that Jesus is hungry. Finally, after three years, we found something that I can uh, identify with. Jesus was hungry. I told myself I wasn't going to make that joke, but yet here I am. <laughs> verse 13, after learning that he's hungry, we read that, and seeing in the distance a fig tree, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. I ate a ripe fig once right off of the tree. It was in Albania at a missionary's house. It was over 20 years ago, 
But I remember it vividly because that fig was amazing. It was nothing like the Fig Newtons I ate growing up as a kid. I am anything but an expert on figs, but I've read about them. Let me tell you what I've found. Fig trees, they generally produce ripe figs from August to sometime in October. That's when fall sets in. Once fall sets in, the fig trees, they lose their leaves, like all other deciduous trees. It's like what we see outside happening here in Montana. Now, throughout the winter, these fig trees, they develop buds along their branches. In the spring, the buds, they become these little green knobs about the size of the tip of an adult thumb. They're called pagum in Hebrew. They're baby figs. These pagum, these knobs, they start to grow on the fig trees, and this is important, before the leaves start to grow. So once leaves start to grow on a fig tree, these knobs, these baby figs, they should be all over the tree. And though they are small, and they're not nearly as delicious as a big ripe fig, these baby figs are edible. That is what hungry Jesus expects to find on this fig tree with leaves on it. Since there's leaves on the tree, it should have had these knobs. But he finds none. So he curses it. Verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Church, why is Jesus so mean to this fruitless fig tree? It's because the story about the tree isn't at all about the tree. It is a real life, lived out parable. Jesus doesn't simply just say or tell this parable. He lives this parable out. And with the tree, Jesus teaches us about the temple, the very temple. He went in and looked around the night before and the very temple he's on his way to today. Now from a distance, this fig tree looked to be full of life-giving fruit. It had the markings of a healthy fig tree. It's full of leaves, which means it should have been full of baby figs. But upon closer inspection, it's fruitless. It promised life. It promised food. It promised nourishment. It looked like it could feed his empty stomach. But upon closer inspection, the tree is barren, empty, vain. In other words, the tree is all show, no substance, just like 
the temple. Full of activity, full of sacrifices, full of people and money and priests, full of leaves. But upon closer inspection, all Jesus found is an empty, barren, vain tree posing as a life-giving temple. Rather than feeding God's people, rather than giving them what they hungered for, the temple was fruitless. You see, Jesus did not curse the fig tree because he gets grumpy when he's hungry. He cusses, curses the fig tree to teach us about the barren temple. Which brings us to point number two. You ready for point number two? Point number two is all show no substance. Isn't that point number one? It is. But it's also point number two, two. And boys, you're not allowed to make fun of me for saying two, two later. Point number one, all show and no substance applied to the fig tree. And point number two, we're going to see that it applies to the temple. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of the, those who sold pig, pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, as we dive into this passage, this point, I'm going to try to use some technology, and it looks like it's even going to work. Now, if I could do something for all of you, it would be to take you to Israel. Probably not like right now, because now is not a real good time over there. But I would love for us all to be able to go and see and experience the places where Jesus and much of the Bible fleshed itself out. But I can't do that. Instead, I want to bring some of Israel, so to speak, to you this morning. And it's a piece of Israel we couldn't actually go and lay our eyes on today. It is the temple. And I want to show you just how grandiose, how big, how magnificent the temple was that Jesus now walks into and cleanses. We find ourselves at what's called the double gate. And we're walking through the double gate up the stairs. And now we're going to get a bird's eye view of the temple. The tall portion building there in the center, that's where the Holy of Holies lies. That front section is actually called the courtyard of the priest. And that's where things like the showbread and the, the uh, what's the seven candle thing called? 
the menorah, see, good. The menorah was there with the, with the fig leaves on the menorah. It's also where the altar of incense was. This tall portion behind that that you see now that we're kind of looking at, that was the Holy of Holies. And look what it looks out on. You see the hills? That's the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus descended into Jerusalem, and that's where he left on Sunday night. Now you're getting a better glimpse of just the magnitude of it. The Temple Mount was about 500 feet long, not 500 feet, 500 yards long, by about 325 feet, no, not feet, yards wide, huge, huge. Let me skip ahead here. Now we get a perspective of it. I want to show you, just point out a few aspects of the temple. Later, you're going to hear me talk about the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin would meet in this long, tall tower here. That's where the Sanhedrin, if you're wondering what the Sanhedrin is, the Sanhedrin was made up of about 70 men. The chief priest, the high priest led the Sanhedrin. It was the Supreme Court of Israel. It was made up of men from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, mostly Sadducees, some scribes in there, experts of the law as well. They're the ones who will later try Jesus and send him over to Pontius Pilate. Down here, you can see this little tiny building. There's two buildings here. One's in blue, and here I'll trace the other one in red. The red building, the one outlined in red, that's where the Sanhedrin would hold their court with if you had a dispute or you needed something settled. The blue building, that's actually where people would go and take baths, ceremonial baths, and they would be cleansed so that way they could go in and enter like we just did through the double gate, or they could have come over here to what is known as the triple gate. I'll let you figure out why they called them the double and the triple gate. <laughs> you guys are a tough crowd this morning. I need you to laugh a little bit more. <laughs> we talked about this over here. This is this is the, the courtyard of the priests. That's where they would go in and offer the incense and the showbread every day before the Lord. Behind that in the blue, this was the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a huge veil, two of them actually, that would run down that entire expanse. I don't remember how tall that was, but on each of those veils, there were wings of the seraphim, just like it's described in both the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. Now, more, more to our point this morning. I want to show you the different courts where people were allowed to go. Down in here, this is called the court of the Israelites. Men and the priests were allowed into this court, and this is where all of the sacrifices were made, the burnt offerings and so on so forth. Outside of that court, you had this court right here. It was called the court of the women. It's all the farther that the Jewish women were allowed into the temple. Now, beyond the court of the women was what was just called, I can't remember what this was called. Oh, this was another court out here that's outlined by blue. And both the men and women, Israelis, were allowed in this. What separated that is a small fence and beyond the small fence is this area in green. This is what is known 
as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the only place non-Jews, i.e. all foreigners, were allowed to go. Now, the reason I bring this up, it's going to become very relevant in just a moment. But it is this area, the court of the Gentiles, where Jesus comes and he cleanses the cows. That's a cow. It says moo. (laughs) And this is where the doves were. Uh, Yes, doves were as big as cows back then. (laughs) But it filled the court of the Gentiles. And because the Sanhedrin had essentially turned the court of the Gentiles into this major flea market... There was not room for foreigners to come and be a part of the temple. Now, this has Jesus upset. I'm going to tell you why he's upset, but we're going to have to read one more verse. Look at verse 17. It says here, so after he clears these guys out, okay, let's just back up. He clears all these merchants out, and he's not letting anybody pass through what we think he's saying there let me we don't think really he's letting anybody pass through here to offer the sacrifices when it says in verse 16 he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple he's essentially stopping the sacrifices the worship in the temple he draws it to a halt and then after he gets everybody's attention he starts teaching them You could imagine what an uproar this would be. This would be like somebody walking in through the doors of our church service, in the middle of our singing, throwing all the tables around, all the chairs around. Everybody's looking at this guy, thinking, what is going on? And once he gets everyone's attention, the music is stopped. He starts teaching. And what's he teach? He teaches Isaiah 56. Verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Listen, Mark's the only guy, the only author of the Gospels that includes that phrase, a house of prayer for all the nations. Usually, when we hear about the cleansing of the temple, We hear about him talking about the people turning everything into a den of thieves. Here, Mark emphasizes something he says before he accuses them of making it a den of thieves. He says, my house, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And he says, for all the nations, he's not saying the Jews are supposed to come there to pray for the nations. No. What he's saying is, my father's house is supposed to be a place where all the nations can come and pray to my Father, commune with God. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all, or my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Isaiah 56 because I want you to see why Jesus is so upset. Isaiah 56, if you go to Psalms 
turn right past Proverbs, past Song of Solomon. There's another book in there too, Ecclesiastes. Then you'll hit Isaiah. Isaiah 56. Jesus gets everybody's attention and he starts preaching Isaiah 56. Verse three says this, let not the foreigner, what's a foreigner church? A Gentile, okay? Let not the Gentiles, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. See what's going on here? He's saying, don't let, don't let people who are not Jews say that God's separating himself from me. He goes on, he says, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Of course, a eunuch was a man who could not have children for various reasons. What you have going on here in Isaiah 56 is you have the foreigner and the eunuch. Later on in Isaiah 56, you'll also have exiles, but you have people that have been excluded from the people of God. And God is inviting the people that have been excluded to now be a part of his people. He includes foreigners, Gentiles, exiles, eunuchs. But evidently, even as God in Isaiah 56, he invites these people to come and be a part of his people. Evidently, the people running the temple, the center of worship, had not gotten the memo. Because here in Mark 11, they're being excluded. That's why they have this court here. They're keeping him out of the temple. That's an arrow. Doggone it. I'm not very good at this stuff. The temple was what is inside of the blue. The temple mount is what's outside of the blue. And that's what makes up the court of the Gentiles. They're keeping them from the temple. So the very people that God has invited, the leadership, the Sanhedrin, is excluding. And that's why they've created this courtyard for the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, if you were any kind of Gentile coming from any nation other than Israel, you could not pass through this. Oh, you can't see it. Let's do this. You could not pass through this green fence. It was called the Sorig. It was a fence that literally kept the foreigners out from the temple, keeping them from meeting with God. The Sanhedrin was so serious about it that they had posted signs in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic all along the fence saying that no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So Jesus walks into the temple. The outskirts that had been designated for the Gentiles is full of cows and lambs and pigeons and money. He drives them out. 
And he starts preaching God's word as he sees the signs and says, no foreigners allowed. In essence, he's saying, this is not at all what my, my father wants. This is to be a house of prayer for all people. God doesn't keep people from coming to him, especially based upon ethnicity. This is not the reflection of his love and salvation. So he's preaching this Isaiah 56. Look at verse 4. Let's go back to Isaiah 56. For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs, those unclean eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. Listen, he's talking to men who can't have kids. And he says, men, I'm going to give you something better than sons and and daughters, I'm going to give you a, not, a name, a monument in my house forever. Look at the rest of that verse there, verse 5. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse 6, and the foreigners, those non-Jews who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, these Gentiles, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the temple, the temple mount, Mount Moriah, Zion. I will bring these, these foreigners to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Gentile inclusion. Now back in Mark chapter 11, you don't need to go there yet. Jesus then, he doesn't say it in our text, but you get the gist here. He asked the people listening to turn from Isaiah 56 to Jeremiah 7 when he calls this place a den of robbers. Go over to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 is a few more pages to your right. Jeremiah 7. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So where are we at? The temple. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So you've got Jeremiah standing outside of the temple. It's not this temple. This is Herod's temple. It's Solomon's temple built on the same place, a little bit smaller in scale. So he says, Jeremiah, go to one of the gates where all the men are going in, and I want you to proclaim this word. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
amend, that is change, alter your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What are the deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, go stand outside the place of worship and everybody who walks in, you tell them, don't trust the leadership, the religious leaders that run this place that are telling you this is the temple of the Lord. No, it's a den of robbers. Sure, they'll take your money. Sure, they'll take your offerings. Sure, they'll take your grain and bake bread with it and steaks out of the, the burnt offerings. But this is not the temple of the Lord. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways. Now, okay, so he hit the, the hypocrisy of the leadership. He's going to come back to that. But he hits the hypocrisy of the leadership. Now he's going to talk about their hypocrisy. Verse 5, for if you, you men, truly amend, change your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, what's a sojourner? It's a non-Jew living in the land. These are very thought-provoking words in light of the history or the events of today in Israel, are they not? Let's start over in verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? only to go on doing all these abominations? Jeremiah looks at these men, he says, do you really think you can live like the hellion during the week and come here to the Lord's holy temple and say, oh, I'm delivered, I'm delivered, I'm delivered, and then go out and live the exact same life? Do you really think that God's going to let that happen? No. Verse 11. Has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, the Lord's temple, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He's asked, don't you see? Don't you see what the temple's become? It's a house of thieves. And then he goes on and says, behold, I myself, that is the Lord, have seen it declares the Lord. Go on now, verse 12, to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Listen, Shiloh just isn't a road in Billings. <laughs> it was a town 19 miles north of Jerusalem. 
And for the longest time, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of the Lord, was in Shiloh. And the people of Israel were making a mockery, living in hypocrisy when it came to God. And they would go to Shiloh, they would go to the tent of meeting, and they would present their offerings. And God said, no! Because of their sin, God took that place of worship and shut it down. And now Jeremiah is telling these people in the Old Testament, I'm going to shut this temple down just like I did in Shiloh. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. The reason Herod's temple exists is because Solomon's temple was destroyed. And it wasn't until after the exile, after the Jews had been kicked out of the promised land and came back in Ezra that they began to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did in Shiloh. Did God fulfill his promise to knock down that temple, to destroy it and shut it down? Absolutely. Now, that's the context. That's what Jesus is bringing up as he walks into the temple. He pushes everything to the side and he's saying just like what happened and Jeremiah promised to shut this place down. I'm going to shut this place down. We won't get to it today, but Mark 13, 1 and 2, he tells his disciples that there will not be one stone of the temple left on top of the other. So he metaphorically is standing in the temple, looking at the Sanhedrin, calling them out, saying, don't call this place the temple of the Lord. He pulls out his metaphoric double-barrel shotgun, aims at them because his wrath has been provoked, and he fires away. This place, he says, is a den of thieves, just like Solomon's place was a den of thieves. And you, religious leaders, are responsible. How do they respond? Oh, they melt in repentance and humility. No. Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. This guy is dangerous. He has our number. He's calling us out. And not only does he have our number and he call us, is he calling us out, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Oh, this might make a little bit of sense. Listen, they feared him because he was right. He threatened everything that they were about. They were lining their pockets. He threatened their financial security, their power, their authority, their importance. How twisted is this? These are the religious leaders. These are the men that are responsible to lead people, not just the Jews, the world, to the Lord. They were the ones to stand in the gap between God and mankind. But rather than living up to their calling, they used 
their position for selfish gain. Den, it was a den, it was a house for robbers. They were taking the goodwill of the people and they were using it for their own advantage. Stealing from them, no, stealing, if possible, from God. And not only were they doing this, this also had a double effect in that they were leading God's people astray. Is there any wonder that verse 19 tells us that when evening came, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, went out of the city. This place, this city, this temple that Jesus has been marching towards since way up in Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if you remember, but it's been taking us months to get here. He can't even spend a night. It's so sickening. So that's the text. Let me ask you, and you can turn the screen off if you want. Let me ask you, what does this text teach us about Jesus? What does this text teach us about Jesus? Two things that I want to point out. One, and I don't want this to sound politically motivated at all. Jesus came to destroy, break down racial and ethical, ethical, not ethical, ethnic barriers. So that way he could make one people of God. Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. There's about a hundred of you guys that are working through Ephesians with this men's and the women's flourish. You're doing a great job. Excel still more. In God's providence, he has you studying the passage I'm about to read to you. Let me back up and just highlight one thing. What Mark points out to us that no other gospel writer points out to us is that Jesus was passionate about God's temple being a temple for all the nations. I want that to be very, very clear in your mind. He came, he came not just to save the Jews, but to make all peoples a part of the household of God. Let's go to Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, you foreigners in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, which means you weren't a Jew, by that which is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, you who were you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who are the, who's the both? Who has made us both one? Israel and everybody else, the Gentiles, the foreigners. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When Paul says the dividing wall of hostility, I wonder if he has in mind that fence in the temple that had signs plastered on it. If you cross, foreigner, you will die. Sounds hostile to me. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby calling killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. The idea there of aliens, sojourners. You're no longer sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, there it is, a holy temple to the Lord. Big picture. What's, what are we learning? The temple in Jerusalem is no longer the center of worship. Jesus uses the Romans in 70 AD to destroy that thing. Jesus is building a new temple. He's the cornerstone. And around him are living stones. Who makes up the living stones? Jews and Gentile alike. Anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. Which means you. You are a part of the temple of God. We could go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. That talks about how now you, Gentile, are a part of the holy nation a royal priesthood. Not only are you the temple, you're the nation and you're the priesthood in the temple. A people for God's own possession. This is why Jesus came. It wasn't to separate by fences and keep people out. It was to turn his temple into a place of communion, a house of prayer for all the nations. And that is good news because that means you are included. Second thing I want to teach you about Jesus, and we need to be done from this text. Jesus does not take corrupt spiritual leadership lightly. He goes in. I mean, you read through the Old Testament like we have this last year as a church. Time and time again, he calls out the false bad shepherds leading Israel. 
He does not take corrupt spiritual leadership lightly. Church, I want to invite you to be very leery of religious leaders who seem to be building personal empires, who have their name plastered on everything, who have multiple million-dollar houses. There's something that doesn't smell right. Be especially leery of the ones who can never be wrong. These religious leaders in this text were using the temple to line their pockets to become wealthy, and they could not even be corrected by Jesus himself. Yet, these religious leaders seemed to be very helpful. They were offering the people, people a lot of things. One could say that they were even offering the people a lot of practical help when it came to their spiritual lives. They were making the temple super efficient. Look at all these wonderful vendors and the money changers. We don't even have to go find a money changer. We can buy our lamb right here. We can be in and out in less than an hour. How convenient. But despite their help, despite their convenience, they were leaving the main thing. Jesus, the one thing that mattered out. They were not offering Christ to the people. And if we're being sober, when we think about the church, at least buildings that have the word church out front, I think this is often what happens today. We can walk into such buildings and be offered all kinds of practical help, marital advice, parenting advice, leadership advice, without Jesus. Theology classes, without Jesus. They offer worship service and sermons with little to no Jesus. Offering home groups, discipleship groups without Jesus. Going to a church that does not make much of Christ is not that much different than going to a temple that offers lambs, that offers bulls, that offers grain offerings without Jesus. One might say, it's all leaves without fruit. Substance is lacking. And one could say, it's all show. No substance. Church, Paul set our marching orders as spiritual shepherds and leaders in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. What's our job as pastors, as shepherds, as leaders, Christian leaders? 
to proclaim him. Christ crucified. We admonish all men, teaching all men with all wisdom. Why? So that we can present all men, all people, mature, complete in Christ. This is why we labor. This is why we strive, not for the proclamation of ourselves, our churches, or our kingdoms, personal churches or kingdoms, but for Christ and his kingdom. We must present people with Jesus week in and week out. And so once again, Cornerstone, I invite you to look to Christ Know Christ, abide in Christ, for apart from him, you can do nothing at all. Trust Christ, for he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. As a matter of fact, one might say, he's better than everything in every way. You say, Jeff, you sound like you preach the same message every week. And I say, amen. To know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I didn't tell the first service this, so we're not putting this one on the internet. So if you're trying to find something later in the week, you're probably not going to hear it. But I am convinced that the reason you go to churches and you're not hearing much made out of Christ, it's because the men are not spending much time with him. Because when you turn the page after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead, you see his men in the book of Acts preaching Jesus in every message everywhere they go and when they're told to stop they tell the same same sanhedrin we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard these men didn't come up with seven ways to make your marriage better these men didn't go around teaching cis theo classes they preached Christ, And there's nothing wrong with making your marriage better or since Theo classes. But there is something better. And his name is Jesus. And I want to invite you to make him the center of your life. The pursuit of all that you are. Acknowledge him day in and day out. Not just in the morning when you wake up and you have your quiet time. Not just at night as you lay your head on your pillow and you sleep, but walk with Jesus throughout the day. See him everywhere and see how much you proclaim him. Because what you're going to find when you live your life following him on the Calvary Road is that he truly is better than everything in every way. You want your faith to flourish? Spend time. No. Spend your every waking hour 
with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I, I fall short. I sit here and I try to point all of us to you and I tell us to spend every waking moment with you. Lord, teach us through experience what that is. Lord, give us through the power of your Holy Spirit such a mindfulness that, you're, that you never leave us or forsake us. That we can invite you, that Lord, that we can talk to you as if you are here because you are here. Lord, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the Holy Spirit is in you, that you are a temple of the living God? Lord, you're with us. Help us to walk with that faith. Lord, help us to, to spend a lot less time on what we can see, but what is unseen. For what is unseen is forever. But all this stuff that we see around us all day long, it's temporal. It will all burn up. It's all going away. Lord, help us to live in the reality of your presence, to know you, to live under the reality that we are the temple of the holy God, that we are living priests, Lord, that that would be our identity, so much more so than what we wear or what sports team we cheer for or how big the bull is that we kill this fall. Lord, let all these things of earth grow strangely dim. And may Christ, oh Lord, He'd be so bright that we can't help but see him everywhere. So, please, we ask. Amen.